Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the education channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Tom DeSena, from the Department of Communication, Journalism, and Public Relations at Oakland University. My guest today is Jason Reznikoff, the author of Labor's End, How the Promise of Automation Degraded Work. Labor's End traces the discourse around automation from its origins in the factory to its wide-ranging implications in political and social life. As Reznikoff argues, the term automation expressed the conviction that industrial progress meant the inevitable abolition, abolition of manual labor from industry. But the real substance of the term reflected industry's desire to hide an intensification of human work and labor's loss of power and protection behind significant machinery and a starry-eyed faith in technological revolution. The rhetorical power of the automation ideology revealed and perpetuated a belief that the idea of freedom was incompatible with the activity of work. From there, political actors ruled out the workplace as a site of politics, while some of labor's staunchest allies dismissed sped-up tasks, expanded workloads, and incipient deindustrialization in the name of technological progress. A forceful intellectual history, Labor's End challenges entrenched assumptions about automation's transformations of the American workplace. Jason Reznikoff is an assistant professor of contemporary history at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. Jason Reznikoff, welcome to the New Books Network. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's really great to be here. Um, congratulations on this book. It, it really is an excellent and wide-ranging account of a thoroughly fascinating subject. Um, before we get into the substance of what you've written here, let me ask, what brought you to this project? Oh, for sure. I think uh, I started it in the mid-teens, the 20-teens, that is, obviously. And uh, there was a lot of talk in the media about uh, the automation revolution that was coming down the pipe. And uh, I found it very interesting and at the same time a little confusing. Confusing because I couldn't quite figure out what they were talking about, what machines were going to do it or how. So I decided to go back into the historical record and I found that in the sort of the mid 20th century, people were talking about automation a lot. And I do mean a lot, much more than even today. There was basically no politician or no political movement in that very political time that did not include automation in its uh, platform in some capacity to explain it, say what it would do. But what was so interesting was that even in that moment when the automation discourse, I would say, really arose in the post-war period, mainly in the United States, but throughout the industrial world, there was also a great deal of uh, uh, disagreement at the time about what automation meant, what machines they were, or how it was going to work, or what the effects would be. And so it became pretty clear to me that if everyone knew that something was happening, but no one could agree what it was, that we were probably entering into the realm of ideology or the world of ideas. And so that would it's what brought me to the to the question of what is this exactly, and that's where the, the project took off from. So so let's start out by defining some of the the key terms here. What do you understand as automation, and at least as important, how is it different from the discourse of automation? Sure. So, I mean, uh, I'll start with a little bit of history. I guess this is an occupational hazard being a historian. You know, I have to tell a story rather than just answer a question. Um, but the word automation is relatively new. It uh, was coined in the post-war period after World War II, and it was coined in, by the Ford Motor Company to, to take the name of their uh, their so-called automation department. 
Uh, it was coined a second time by uh, this computer booster out of uh, Harvard Business School in the 1950s. But all that is to say that the word was new. And so what I take automation to mean is to actually ground it in its historical origins, which was uh, a sense among post-war Americans in particular that they had entered a new uh, technological era because the period after World War II was a time of heady technological utopianism. And one could understand why there have been a series of important technological breakthroughs in the interwar period and after World War II. And as well, uh, the immense sort of uh, power displayed by a particularly American industrial plan after World War II seemed to be kind of a, a, a re-legitimization of industrial capitalism, especially American industrial capitalism. It won the war. It produced these you know, uh, mechanical miracles, whether it's the digital computer or the atomic bomb. And so this sense of a new technological era dawning mixed with all of this optimism Sort of allowed post-war Americans to believe that perhaps the problem, the old problems of industrial civilization, could be solved with machines. Machines themselves would fix political problems. And so my argument is that what the automation, what the word automation was meant to do, was to capture this sense or this desire, this utopian desire among Americans. And so the basic gist of it was this: to come back to answer at long last your question. Is that what, the, what automation is or what the discourse is, and I think those two things are the same, what auto, automation is an idea, which is that it's basically a story. And the story is this, that all technological progress or all technological development tends towards the abolition of human labor, and particularly physical human labor from industry. So uh, this is not just what I think, but even 1955, when Congress had hearings on the quote-unquote automation revolution, they said quite specifically, this is not just more mechanization. Automation is a fundamental change in the nature of civilization. It's a new kind of technology. So it's all the more remarkable that they couldn't say what that technology was, what the specific machine was meant to be. So I find when people use the word automation today, sometimes it is used just to mean like a machine is now literally doing what a person used to do. But usually even when they're just saying like this machine now does what a person does, the word automation obscures more than it clarifies. It's not a specific technology. It's not a specific process. It isn't just making things automatic. Usually the implication is, is that now machines have taken over and that they're going to continue to do so in a kind of technologically determinist through line. So that it's a, that there's this inevitable demiurge about civilization, particularly industrial civilization, that destroys human labor. And so I would say it's actually impossible to sort of take out um, the technical meanings of automation from its ideological meanings. They're one and the same. That's what I would say. So your book then goes on to explore a series of sites where um, the automation discourse is deployed. Um, the first, and, and this is perhaps the most obvious, and, and I'm talking to you from a, a suburb of Detroit, so we're surrounded by it here. Uh, the local historical museum, for instance, has a very large display. Uh, it it take, occupies a huge space um, that shows a Cadillac being assembled over and over and over again by robots. Um, and and even the the Rouge factory tour, um, you know the the old the, the Rouge factory that was so made so famous by the the Ford Motor Company, now has a, a public tour where you can go in and watch F one fifties being built, and most of what you see from that tour are of course these uh, these robots. Um, so 
how was the idea of automation deployed in the the post-war automobile industry? Oh, for sure. So the way it works is, um, and I just have to say, as I'm going to answer that question, the, your, those tours sound very similar to tours. People used to take up the GM Lordstown plant in the early 1970s where they watched these robots do it. And it, of course, you know, there's a huge strike at that plant in 72. But um, it was like the, the sort of the same story. No, but in the automobile industry, uh, the idea of automation comes uh, sort of hits the ground in 1946, 1947. And the idea was that they were uh, the Ford Motor Company after World War II was going to retool its factories. And they brought in actually a series of what are at the time rather old machines. They were called uh, transfer machines. And they were they dated back from the 1880s, actually. And then what they did specifically was that they would usually uh, machine rough cast engine blocks. And then if you put a bunch of these transfer machines together, you'd get a transfer line. And the idea was you put a rough cast engine block at one end, at the other end would come out a finished engine block. Those would be ready to, you know, you put the cylinders in, you could put it right in the car. And they pointed to this and they said, you know, this is a now automation that's getting rid of all of these workers. And soon this specific technology will, you know, somehow implicate the entire plant and there'll be no more workers in any of these Ford uh, factories, GM and Chrysler were also bringing in uh, transfer machines at the time. But I think what, what I found in the record was that this was actually a speed up. Yes, indeed, these transfer machines, which again were old technology, not new, were useful in speeding up a very narrow portion of the work. And so if anyone were to go to the engine line, and specifically the transfer line, and see this, it said there are no more workers in this factory. But in fact, the workers throughout the factory who were now doing other tasks that weren't implicated immediately by these machines were working harder and they were working faster. But that's just like the very immediate uh, uh, use of the word automation in the, in the automobile industry. Because in fact, by the late 1940s, every new machine that was brought in to the Ford Motor Company and GM and Chrysler was called automation. It was a constellation of all kinds of different machines, not all of which by any means got rid of workers or fired them, but a great many of which sped them up a great deal. And so the kinds of machines that both management and workers are describing in the 1940s, 1950s, and 1960s, a lot of them are actually just old machines that are now running faster. And you'd even have workers saying, we're working at the new automation speed up, which is, it seemed to be a contradiction in terms, right? So, uh, and I would say that the main actual intervention or the main thing that was really new in Ford and on actually most, uh, in most automobile factories in the 1940s wasn't any specific new kind of machine, actually was the presence of a, of a militant industrial union, the UAW. And that's where we get to the real origins of automation, I would say, which is that you know, after World War II in particular, I mean, certainly after the passage of the, you know, the National Labor Relations Act 1935, but really after World War II, it was sort of common sense now that while unions had been limited in their radical qualities, they were nevertheless uh, a pillar of humane civilization. You couldn't be a responsible factory owner and say that, you know, you hated unions in principle. Instead, uh, factory owners had to find, or uh, certainly corporations had to find other ways to try to limit or even to evict unions from the shop floor. And so one of the ways that the Ford Motor Company did it was with this concept of automation. And the argument was basically this. It was that, uh, yes, you know, unions are good, but unfortunately, technological progress itself is saying that we won't need workers anymore soon. So actually, you know, while we seem to be you know, degrading the working conditions of workers, this isn't management trying to gain power. Rather, this is just history uh, unfolding, and this is what progress looks like. 
And so that's what really ended up being automation on the shop floor in uh, the automobile industry. So you'd go to all these different shops and you'd have workers saying, like, automation is really a killer. They fired a bunch of people or but, and now I'm working like as hard as two people used to work. Man, automation is crazy. And that's generally how it unfolded. So it comes out from this immediate mechanism, the transfer line, and then very quickly uh, it uh, implicates many other aspects of production. So many others that it really isn't a specific technology anymore. So after you sort of lay this groundwork in the automobile industry, you start to explore a series of what might be less obvious sites where the automation discourse is used really to effectively disempower workers. Um, talk to us about um, the, the, how automation uh, starts to transform clerical work. Oh, yeah. That was actually the most surprising bit for me as well. So everyone's... Uh, Automation gets its second bite at the apple, or what really brings automation to, into public is the uh, publication of a book called uh, Automation, The Invention of the uh, Automatic Factory, which is written by uh, a guy named John Diebold. John Diebold uh, was real muckety-muck. He knew a lot of famous people, a lot of famous people hung out with him. There was, you know, Ayn Rand or you know, JFK's administration tried to bring him on board. He was friends with members of you know uh, both Republicans and Democrats. He you know, knew that you know, the CEO of RCA, all of these things, but he becomes a major booster of the automation discourse itself. And he kind of, and the New York times would call it uh, him you know, automations evangelist. And so he is an example in the book. I, I, I spent a lot of time with him, but mainly because he's one of the first people to argue first of many that uh, the value of this new machine called the electronic digital computer, its value is based on the fact that it will get rid of human clerical labor. So in the early 1950s, the computer industry had a lot of trouble selling computers. And it was clear why. Computers at the time were in no way, it wasn't clear how they would be profitable. They're really big, they're incredibly expensive, and they just do enormous calculations. So like if you're NASA or the Census Bureau, then you might want a, a digital computer. But if you're selling paper cups, it's not clear what you would do with one. And so it's really the likes of uh, boosters like John Diebold who say, actually, the value of the electronic digital computer lies in that it handles information. Because in the post-war period, I mean, this is the Pax Americana, you had all of these, you know, growing international corporations based out of the U.S. who had booming payrolls, bringing a lot of clerical workers to push paper and, uh, and of course, to, to filing and, and to data. And they didn't know how to get rid of this now increasingly both proletarian and female quotient of the office. It was rather disturbing to office managers. And so the, that's when you have the types like Jeff Diebold who come in and say the electronic digital computer will do what these clerical workers do. Right. So instead of having an office full of women working at key punch machines, we'll just have a big, giant computer in the basement and it'll produce very useful uh, information from the raw data that's fed to it. Of course, this did not happen at all. That's not how it happened. I mean, certainly companies started investing in computers, but the irony is while the computer's value is premised on it's supposedly its power to automate office procedures, rather what ended up happening is people had to hire more clerical workers, not fewer, because again, the machine could do a lot of work in a very narrow band. It could make very, you could do a lot of calculations quickly. But in order for such a machine to be profitable, you had to enter a lot of data into it. And that was most definitely still the work of the human hand. And so you had actually more women, in particular women, being hired as clerical workers to key punch and to produce machine-readable punch cards mainly, or sometimes magnetic tape, in order to run these computers. 
And so I think it's like, you know, usually it's actually rather like today, you know, which is that automation gets attached to the most spectacular uh, new machines available. So a lot of what in the 1950s and the 1960s people called automation, it, we're talking about the digital computer as well as other machines. Today, a lot of that discourse is sort of uh, carried by the idea of AI or artificial intelligence. You ask someone on the street, what is AI? They're going to have a lot of trouble answering you. And it's actually a very difficult uh concept to define and yet it's somehow doing a lot of uh wonders right it's producing it's going to get rid of all jobs somehow although no one could say precisely how it's going to do that and in just that way the idea of the computer and specifically automation in general but the electronic digital computer carried the same kind of rhetorical weight in the 1950s and the 1960s so one of the one of the themes that that comes up in the next chapter has to do with the relationship between freedom and work. And, and I think it's interesting that the automation discourse sort of runs parallel to a moment in American history where apparently people were concerned about the ability of machines to pro, you know, prolong leisure, not, not work, right? That, that essentially we were going to, that the, a big social problem that, that people were thinking about in the late 1950s, early 1960s is what are we going to do with all of these workers because they're not going to have to be at work anymore and how are they going to fill out their time with something other than, than TV? So tell us a little about this, um, uh, how um, automation factors into discussions about freedom and work. Oh, for sure. I mean, I actually think this is where this is the heart of the book. It's certainly the part I find the most interesting. Uh, and it's, I think it's where it drives my own research into the subject. So a little bit about this before I launch into you know this. Uh, my dad was born during World War II. Uh, he was born in the 1940s. And I grew up hearing from him all the time. Like, in the 60s, they were telling us there's going to be too much leisure. I was like, all right, old man, whatever you say. And then I go back <laughs> into the record and I find it's true. You know, he wasn't just making it up. You know, and that too much leisure was going to be a problem. It's like, where's my flying car? And where's my like 15 hour work week? This was a, anyway, so maybe I'm just, you know, just trying to answer my father's question. What happened? Oh, no, not that it's, I've done it. I did another interview that, that began with um, someone who, who began their work with uh, uh, the TV show, The Jetsons, right? It's like, you know, um, like, you know, just like you said, where's my flying car? And this, these 15 hour work weeks are killing me. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And actually, that is the thing that's sort of hard, you know, I, I will get to the point, I do want to answer the question, but it's like, um, that's when you study the 1950s and the 1960s, they sometimes seem like the subjects of that period seem incredibly naive, because they're so optimistic. And living in a time of incredible pessimism, it's really, it really blows your hair back to see, oh, you'll be leaving on the moon, moon juice, and, you know, we'll, have no, we'll be having a great time with my dolphin pet or something. It's like really weird stuff. But uh, anyway, anyway, so... One of the major problems of industrialization writ large, you know, coming from the long 19th century, is that it actually doesn't fold in very nicely with American political theory. And, you know, according to, you know, like the American political theory of like the late 19th century, the sort of uh, small L libertarianism, we're all supposed to be free individuals, especially if you're a white guy, right? I mean, that's, uh, that's the idea. And so you know, Thomas Jefferson called this yeoman democracy is that every individual will have their own piece of productive property, which will make them independent. And, uh, and this is how you can run a healthy Republican democracy. Now, of course, this is absolutely reconcilable with sexism and nativism and slavery, which is, uh, you know, this is the uh, Stephanie McCurry's title of her books, Masters of Small Worlds. 
but nevertheless central to this idea of, of republicanism is of a broad distribution of productive property which is in theory possible with something like agriculture. Industrialization, on the other hand, is notable because it concentrates productive property. You can't have everyone with their own little factory in their backyard, right? The way this works is that in order to actually have a factory be profitable, you need wage laborers. So something that was very disturbing, you know, as industrialization is taking off in the United States in the 19th century is that uh, erstwhile, otherwise independent farmers are now becoming dependent wage laborers, and this is not a fit subject, supposedly, for democracy. And so the way that this was going to be solved, I mean, there are many different attempts to solve this. You know, the progressives say we're going to have big government come in and they will you know, do something to check big capital. I think the labor movement got closest to a pretty good solution as an actual political attempt in, in the nation's history. And their idea was basically, okay, capital will own the factory. But with the union representation and a union contract, perhaps, workers will own their jobs. So that will become the a sort of uh, the kind of property of an American citizen. And now we've managed to, you know, actually uh, square the circle here. You have dependents, we have wage laborers, but they actually own a piece of the of action. And therefore, they can be good, uh, free citizens. But that's actually not the smoothest reconciliation, especially when you have employers fighting unions left and right. And so what the automation discourse seemed to answer is like, well, we won't, no one will need to be a wage laborer anymore because we'll have basically a new race of natural slaves. And those will be robots or machines or whatever the technology du jour was. And that would seem to say that now everyone can basically live like an Aristotelian gentleman. Now, what makes this so wild is that the labor movement in particular never really was serious about abolishing labor. Rather, their attempt to make to reconcile freedom and industrial civilization, freedom and work, was, again, to empower workers, to make the workplace more democratic, in other words. And I think that's in my my politics are perhaps not particularly relevant right now, but I would say that's still the best answer. But the automation discourse or the promise of automation seemed to kind of just allow a thinker, a political thinker, to just get rid of one half of the problem of how do you reconcile freedom and work? You just won't be any work anymore. So now we can all be Aristotelian gentlemen. And what's weird is that no one in American political theory had really argued that work itself was the cause of oppression. Only two groups of people kind of had a dalliance with that kind of argument. Most people had said a free person works for himself. But like the two groups that beforehand had said that you know free people don't work were um, some utopian socialists, you know, who were real technological utopians. But the other group were slave owners. Right? They said slave owners are free because they have people working for them. It's like the mudsill argument of the 1850s. So, but now with the promise of robot slaves, it would seem everyone could be free according to this particular aristocratic definition of freedom, which is you have, you are free because you have someone working for you. Now, this of course didn't happen. And I would say there's some serious problems with this argument. And if you, if anyone still needs to be working, because it is actually in essence, a definition of freedom that requires the, at the very least, the theoretical and often very really the material degradation of working conditions for people. That's number one. Uh, but secondly, the problem with it is uh, now everyone's going to be a gentleman. So what will everyone be doing? And this is what led into like the, uh, the concern over leisure in the post-war period, right? So this idea of freedom is no longer just independence, but now is actually like leisured sophistication. And, you know, you brought out a lot of the, uh, the snobbery in the American political discourse of the 1950s and 1960s, because it seemed that most people were not prepared to be gentlemen. And so there would have to be some kind of a, 
you know, national project to make sure that everyone could be basically a Harvard grad or someone who could, you know, discuss Homer and the Iliad and enjoy, you know, Mozart. I actually like all those things myself, but I don't think they're, <laughs> they're the foundation of being a good human being. And again, the problem with this was if you're going to define freedom as leisure rather than as independence, it means that anyone who's still working will be like necessarily in a condition of servitude. And actually, one of the remarkable things that I discovered when I was doing research for this was how many good liberals and even left liberals ended up arguing in the 1960s that antebellum slavery, slavery before the Civil War, had been justified because of the civilization stage of development, right? And no abolitionist of the 1850s or 40s or 30s would have said that slavery was conditioned by nature or that it was conditioned by economic development alone. You'd have defenders of slavery saying that. Abolitionists would have said that slavery is caused by slave owners, that people enslaving other people cause slavery. It's not conditioned by the necessity to pick cotton in and of itself. That's exactly the kind of argument that became popular in the 1960s, mainly because people were so excited by the possibility that no one would actually have to work anymore. You won't have to do the difficult theoretical work of trying to find a way to balance freedom and necessity. So one of the themes that, that interests me the most here um, concerns the degradation of work uh, that happens really throughout um, all of the sites that you explore. And in chapter four, you show how labor unions often aided by federal policy, not only failed to resist this degradation, but often participated in it. Yeah, that was extreme. I mean, I think like the te- there are like two examples where that is most notable, but the one I think that'll be probably the most well-known to listeners of this podcast will be uh, Harry Bridges and the ILWU, which is the uh, West Coast Dock Workers Union. There, I mean, uh, and to explain it, so why would union leaders be in favor of material changes to the means of production that made it harder to organize, that got that made jobs worse, and that ultimately disempowered workers on the shop floor, right? Why, why would a union leader be in favor of that? And this is often a question that, you know, historians of labor discuss, you know, in the post-war period, like sometimes you have the least generous saying that, you know, the entire leadership of the labor movement became business unionists, right? They got rid of their left wing because of McCarthyism. And now basically union leaders were in league with owners. I'm not, I think that's, that argument's a little too extreme, but there is an idea among many in the sort of the central, the central plank of the labor movement that uh, actual shop floor contests or should, uh, or, or contests over power on the shop floor shouldn't exist anymore and that these discussions should be had at a higher level at the conference table. But regardless, uh, actually, I, I am, what I think was going on, and Harry Bridges is a good example of this, is that a lot of labor leaders actually believed that automation was happening. They actually believed that automation was the next step of technological civilization, that there really would not be work around anywhere, the work around for, for, for people to take up. So this is also true in the UAW. I mean, you had uh, basically union leaders saying, it'll be really good when the machines take over the wage labor, because then all of our members of our union can graduate into the middle class. And they'll all become white collars, you know, salaried workers, and that would be a great boon to this country. And so uh, Harry Bridges said, a sort of similar view, which and the specific technology that was uh, sort of threatening dock work at the time was containerization, right? So uh, before the advent of containerization, which really doesn't take off until the 1970s, by the way, but before then, you know, you, a ship would come in, it'd be full of brake bulk, which is just 
inside the hold of the ship would be lots of material that would need to be removed. But beginning really in the 1960s, the uh, shipping industry begins putting these things, putting break bulk cargo into containers, and then you have to have special container ships, and then you have special cranes that will actually just like lift the uh, the box right off the container ships. So you don't have to have people scramble inside the ship to pull things out. And this, in theory, could reduce the number of people, workers that you need, and indeed it has actually. Uh, and Harry Bridges, I think, from what I can tell in reading the record, he didn't think that containerization was a question, right? He didn't think is that, well, maybe we don't have to have containerization if we want to keep this job. He took it as given. And that is really, I think, what, what I found so interesting in doing this work was just how powerful ideology really can be. It was this idea that technology was a self-perpetuating force in and of itself, that it wasn't something that could be democratically shaped, that the, the changes to the material world were sort of imbued in the technology itself, that no one was making the choice for what the changes should be. That simply wasn't true. You know, bosses were making these decisions. But especially among union leaders, they were kind of unsure uh, about whether they would be able to actually contest what these material changes were. So instead, they end up doing a lot of catch-up, right? They're, they're reacting to the changes that are taking place. So for Harry Bridges, and the reason he's such a good example, is he said, okay, we're going to actually lean into mechanization. We're going to lean into containerization. Instead of trying to fight it, we're going to, in fact, just make our employer or make the employer buy us out of our jobs, and so the way he did that was, you know, he helped to sort of uh, to negotiate the modernization and mechanization agreement, the M&M agreement. And in that, it was that, you know, as the shipping company brought in more containers, they would have to give what jobs were remaining to uh, workers who were there. They had to guarantee them an annual income. And finally, uh, on top of all of that, they had to guarantee them incredibly good retirement benefits. And of all the unions that had to deal with this kind of mechanization in the uh, post-war period, I would say the ILWU did it best. So, but at the expense of a future generation of workers. And so I think it's like, in order to answer the question, why would labor leaders not fight this so hard? You really do have to retreat to the, the answer of both ideology and uncertainty. And so you can either get the boss to buy you out of the job that they're taking away from you or that they're degrading or that they're sending abroad, or you could try to fight it. And the people who tried to fight it was like the, the UPWA, that's the Union of Pack, uh, the Packing House Workers of America. And there they were far less successful. In fact, so much less, less successful that the entire union fell apart. You know, it doesn't exist anymore. And in fact, you know, now meatpacking is, again, as it was in the 19. 19- it's one of the worst jobs you could have in America. Yeah. The, uh, so, uh, in addition to, I guess this was uh, this was sort of a disheartening chapter that uh, it was it was kind of, it, it was depressing, especially to see you know around around here Walter Ruther is still regarded as something of a hero, but to the degree to which even he was uh, sort of complicit in some of this. Um, likewise, it's not just that. The unions that failed to grapple with automation, but really what you describe as the new left um, that, in your words, turned away from work. So tell us a little about what you mean by this phrase, turn away from work, and, and what you see as the consequences of that turning away. Oh, for sure. So the new left, everyone, I mean, it's easy I mean, for the purposes of narration, to say like the new left and SDS, Students for a Democratic Society, are basically the same thing. I mean, they aren't, but they're very similar. But at the in the original Port Huron statement uh, that SDS wrote, actually at uh, uh, 
at Blackwater, at Black Lake, excuse me, at the UAW's retreat, they said that work should be valued. That was an original sort of core claim of the new left, but very quickly they turned away from it, mainly because of the automation discourse. And there was this belief that, you know, especially among sort of people who were revolutionaries or revolutionary adjacent, they're trying to find two things, right? Where is the revolution going to happen and who will be the vanguard of the revolution? This is almost like a Marxist way of thinking that which people are specially positioned to make the revolution, to make it to make it possible. So Marx would have said the workers at the point of production, right? The workers on the line are the ones who are historically positioned to be the revolutionary class. But people persuaded by automation, which is that you know, there will be no workers on the line anymore, began searching for other you know, places, other locations, and other people who would be the revolutionary class in and of itself. So of course, it can't be ignored that you know, the new left gets a lot of its energy, if not all of it, from the other movement, the civil rights movement, right? Here you have, these are usually college kids who are really inspired by the civil rights movement, and they want to participate in making the country different, making it you know, more progressive, et cetera. And so their example of like a revolutionary class was of you know people involved in the civil rights movement itself, which is mainly Black Americans and their allies. And so for uh, the New Left, they begin actually trying: where can we be activists and where can we turn? And instead of being like an older generation, like the 1930s uh, generation of activists who would have gone into the factories, usually under the you know uh, under the auspices of one party or another, uh, instead they said we're going to actually we are going to organize among the unemployed. These are the people supposedly about to be kicked out of work because of automation. And we're going to organize among college students because these are going to be the new skilled people, right? That automation won't need workers anymore, but it will need managers. It's going to get rid of muscle work and it's going to produce brain work. And therefore, we have to make sure we have all of the brain workers radicalized on campus, which is where a lot of the new left was happening anyway, right? And so uh, because basically what automation as an ideology did for management was it said that the shop floor was no longer a political space, right? There aren't any workers there. There aren't any people there. Politics is only follow people. And that this is, you know, not a choice by management, but this is history itself is telling us that the actual workshop is no longer political. Therefore you have people searching for other political spaces and these seem to be in the streets or the, you know, at shop counters you need to desegregate, and finally on college campuses themselves. And so this was an incredibly persuasive line of thinking on the new left. It just didn't seem to make sense to go into the workplace to organize if that workplace wasn't going to exist anymore, no one was going to be there. Now, what's kind of wild is when the new left actually begins trying to organize among the unemployed, they discover that all the people supposedly about to be let go by automation weren't let go. And that work was still, in fact, important. It was still happening. But it was already, it was, by then, it was already the late 60s. And, you know, they had different fish to fry, like the anti-war movement, et cetera. And so I think the, uh, there was one segment of the new left that eventually turned to, the, to, to workers. That's like the progressive labor party. But those folks were kind of neo-Bolsheviks. They were a little strange. They were a minority of, of the new left, to put it mildly. Uh, so... As the story kind of progresses and we keep moving away from all of those robots putting together Coupe de Ville's on the factory floor, um, your sixth chapter takes us as far away as I think it is you can get and into the domestic sphere. So what happens when automation, as it were, comes to the home? Yeah. I mean, so, you know, when does automation come to the home if it's going to come at all? I mean, one of the you know, there's an architecture critic of the 1940s, his name is Siegfried Gideon, and he said that the interwar period, you know, like 1918 to 19, 
1839 was a remarkable time in the history of industrial civilization because that was the period of full mechanization, which is to say that like industrial modes of production and reproduction become uh, intimate to people's lives. And that when it comes to the home, that's definitely true. Uh, Le Corbusier would say, right, the home is a machine for living. But it's really in this period that you begin to see, especially in the United States, like individual homes being plugged into networks of power, right? Whether it's plumbing or it's electricity or it's roads, and eventually in the post-war period, it'd be like highways and things. But that there's this sense that the home is becoming increasingly mechanized. And this is at the same time that uh, domestic servants become increasingly expensive and harder to hire. And so there's a, there was a you know, discourse around uh, housework at being automated in the post-war period. And this actually coincides with, you know, sort of the, what, Betty Friedan would call the rise of the feminine mystique, right? These are retreats from earlier feminist movements uh, and the, eventually the rise of the second wave feminism, but not before you had sort of the uh, reasser- uh, reassertion of these really very strictly gendered roles about uh, social reproduction. Uh, and so there was a you know, discussion in the 1950s and the 1960s that all these new mechanisms, both electrification, but also actual appliances, will make the home a place where work no longer takes place, that mother will no longer work. Uh, now, there's a very famous uh, history of technology by Ruth Schwartz Cohen called More Work for Mother, which already showed that actually, you know, bringing in all these mechanisms produced more work for, for housewives, not less. But Nevertheless, in the 1950s and the 1960s, there's this idea that it's not clear what women are going to do in the home anymore because now they have all these robot servants helping them. And if viewers haven't seen it, they should definitely YouTube it. But, uh, you know, Ronald Reagan was a spokesman for General Electric, and he and his wife did an advertisement where you have Nancy Reagan sitting in her, you know, really cool 1950s slick pad with all her little electronic things. And she's saying, you know, my electronic servants do all the work for me. Right? This is the uh, this is the level of discourse that's being projected into the nation. Um and, and that's before the Roomba. Right. And that's even before the Roomba. Now, and the problem with this, of course, is that it's just like two things that are really weird. Um, on the one hand, it actually, it begins to say that there's no work taking place in the home anymore. But second, it also argues that when women are being nothing but housewives, that, uh, and of course, this is not true for many women. The women are increasingly taking place in formal wage labor. But then this, of course, we're talking here as like a, on a theoretical level, right? But nevertheless, when a housewife usually coded as white middle-class woman is at home, she's not actually working when she's taking care of her kids or when she's making dinner or when she's cleaning the house. Rather, what she's doing is she's merely expressing her natural feminine essence. So, of course, when Betty Friedan gets her, you know, digs into this, she says, well, this is obviously absurd. Women are really uh, uh, are very unhappy here. But what ends up happening is actually kind of ironic and sort of disturbing, which is that you have a certain plank of both the liberal and eventually the radical feminist movement who actually adopt the automation discourse. They say, like, yes, our houses are increasingly automatic, even though they weren't, and that this kind of labor, which is to say reproductive labor, is beneath the dignity of a human being. No human being should be expected to do this work. In fact, Betty Friedan argues that explicitly. She says that this is a work really for people with learning disabilities. So there's no way to make social reproductive labor coherent with being a free person. And so Betty Friedan's answer is that, you know, women have to be able to join the middle-class professions. And so it's not clear who's going to be taking care of the kids or doing the social reproductive labor at all, right? She doesn't address that, which is what a serious problem with her, her argument. But even among radical feminists, someone like who I talk about in the book, it's Shulamith Firestone, 
who had actually very little in common with Betty Friedan, but who said that actually even literal reproduction is beneath the dignity of a human being, and women would not be free until they were able to escape their reproductive capacity. Now, I mean, especially with the overturning of Roe right now, I, I, I don't want to say like, what are you talking about? Of course you can be free if you're forced to have a baby. That's obviously not true. But rather, the problem with the argument that I would, well, the shortcoming with the argument, I should say, lies with this. What is the cause of that oppression, right? Is it the need to clean your house? Is it the very need of the species to reproduce itself? That's what Biddy Friedan and Shulamith Firestone ended up arguing. So much so that Shulamith Firestone is arguing that the source of women's oppression originates from their capacity to have children, from their uterus, right? And I think it's sort of, again, it's a recap of the defense of antebellum slavery among liberals, which is that the source of slavery <clears throat> wasn't the choices or the decisions of you know people who would enslave other people, of slave owners, it was rather it was something about the nature of that stage of history. It's something about the cotton plant that requires that a slave pick it. You're, I mean, with these arguments, you end up shifting the basically the causality and the blame about where the oppression is coming from. So, I mean, a different way of looking at it would be actually an earlier generation of feminists, uh, someone like Charlotte Perkins Gilman, or what uh, uh, Hayden is called, the, uh, the materialist feminist, who said the best way to, you know, to liberate people, all people, and especially women, is to share reproductive labor as best you can, right? To actually see to it that everyone has to do it. Many hands make light work. Or even to redesign the very way that we live. Instead of all of these nuclear families living in their tiny one-family homes, where they actually require a lot of work, that you do the same thing to social reproductive labor that was done to the textile industry, which is that, you, you know, you share it. You make it a job. You pay for it. That ends up being what the, uh, the National Welfare Rights Organization argues in the late 60s and early 1970s, which is instead of saying that the very essence of being a woman requires that you be oppressed and that you can't be a free person until you escape basically your womanhood, the members of the National Welfare Rights Organization, the majority of whom were uh, mothers who were on welfare, said, actually, what you need to do is you need to reward this work. If the work of motherhood was paid, if the work of motherhood was recognized and valued as such, then in fact, you could make it coherent with being a liberated human being. And the reason that makes a lot of sense, I would argue, is because the other argument, right, that you can't be free until you escape reproduction, you can't be free until you escape the home, is that that means that you can't be free until you have a glut of power. You require a lot of power to do that, mechanical power and all kinds of others. Well, the answer to the National Welfare Rights Organization is the way you get free is by sharing power, right? You don't need to wait for some future mechanical wonder to arrive, some deus ex machina that's going to set you free. Instead, you say, what do we have to do right now? And how can we divide it up so that, you know, sometimes you have to work and sometimes you don't? Now, this becomes especially tricky with, you know, again, with the overturning of Roe. And I'm not arguing, you know, at any, in any way that that's not absolutely essential for a woman, for a woman to have control over her own body. That seems pretty obvious to me. But rather, the discussion then becomes, all right, how do you actually reconcile not just, you know, the need, the actual you know, right to control your own body and having a baby, but what happens after you have the baby? Let's say you actually want a baby, you know, and you want to have it. How do you make sure you can actually be free with that kid? It's like, well, you know, it would be good if the kid could go, you know, have free daycare and free health care, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you have to literally escape the, con the human condition to be free, you're going to be in trouble with your politics. That's, that's the gist of it. Yeah, no. And again, I think I think that's one of the, the things that I read throughout your book is is the way that um, th this automation discourse seems to obscure, um, you know, 
other other forms of oppression that are really happening. And I think the chapter on the home uh, brings it into stark relief. I was reminded of a of an article that I read, and I, I wish I could remember who who wrote it. That that quoted um, public opinion polls about um, uh, robots in different countries. So where you know in the United States we tend to look upon um, you know your term automation with a kind of existential dread, right? It's going to take away my job. It's going to you know uh, all of these or artificial intelligence is going to do all of these horrible things to my life. That if you if you cross uh, boundaries and you go to Sweden and you ask the same question, they're like, yeah. Cool. The robots will do all the all of that crap, and and there will still be something more fun and useful for me to do. Yeah, I mean, and look, that makes a lot of sense, and that's how a person would talk who feels like they actually have some control over their destiny, right? And 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 I think that's actually what's key about automation, mechanization, but really just you know the relationship of individuals to the means of production, which is that if you're totally alienated from them, if these changes are happening to you, not with you, you have no say in them then of course it will be extremely terrifying and probably won't go your way, to be quite frank. You will indeed suffer when the changes happen. So the answer becomes, you know, one of the problems of the automation discourse is it says like once we achieve X moment, you know, when the machines are doing X and Y and we have all this power, then we'll all be free people. It's actually, that's not right at all. You know, people have power when they have a meaningful say over their lives. And you don't need to wait for a machine to, to, to do that. You just need to share power right now. And I think one of the, the Part of what makes the automation discourse useful for especially the owners of property is it allows you not to have that conversation. That why don't we just discuss how we're going to do it right now? Why don't we share the work right now or share the decision making right now? That automation, it, it, the, the discourse shifts that emphasis. And it, says it, makes it, it makes it seem like machines are making all the decisions in and of themselves. And it makes it seem like no one has any control, which is absolutely not true. So in the second to last chapter, we come to the idea of humanization as a supposed antidote to automation. Uh, but it doesn't quite work out that way, does it? No, no. I mean, this is like the real, we get into like the real 60s stuff in this, uh, I think it's chapter seven, which is, uh, you know, uh, you know, it was very clear to most people who were working, certainly in the auto industry, but many other industries, that what was called automation wasn't making their lives better. Right? Uh, I think as one worker said, what automation has meant is both speed up and unemployment at the same time. Some people have to work way harder, and other people get fired instead of sharing the work, you know, which was, uh, you know, which would have been, I think, much better for workers. And so, uh, part of the, you know, the new left and the counterculture of the late 60s was about, you know, being your authentic self. And part of this meant that being a human being was a good thing, as opposed to, you know, maybe like the 1950s, people were arguing you want to escape the human condition in order to be happy, you know, literally we'll fly to outer space and we'll finally find where freedom lies. But, you know, in the late 60s, you get a lot of this uh, sort of this back to earth quality. And you know, this is sort of captured in a bunch of sort of superficial ways, like the, like the Earthrise picture of 1968 that the Apollo 8 uh, mission took. But at the, you know, the crunchy stuff, the granola hippie stuff. Uh, and this actually ended up being a very powerful answer to the automation discourse. So a few things end up happening, which is that uh, the most important of which is that the United States of America as a nation in the late 60s, early 70s begins to hit all kinds of limits that beforehand people had thought they had escaped forever. So this includes like a turndown in the economy, for sure, a crisis of profitability, 
stagflation later in the 70s in the decade, but at the same time, environmental limits, it becomes sort of clear that uh, industrialist civilization has a terrible impact on the environment that could no longer be ignored by the late 60s, early 70s. So much so that you have someone like, you know, you have Nixon helping to establish the EPA. Um, that's how kind of commonsensical it was. And then finally, you're hitting all kinds of like political limits, the limits of revolution. I mean, people, it's a very uh, exciting political moment, the late 60s and the early 70s. But at the same time, you had the movement fracturing in a thousand different ways. And so this sense that the economy, the nation state itself, Vietnam, and the environment, that all everyone's hitting these limits also means that the utopian power that had fueled the automation discourse was no longer so persuasive. And at the same time that you have basically the New Deal order beginning to fracture and break apart, that workers who beforehand, even many unionized workers who had been sort of unable to openly rebel or effectively rebel, get that power in the late 60s and early 70s. And you see the early 70s is remarkable because it's a period of immense labor militancy. Uh, you know, the people who were participating in it said it was, a, they thought it was their version of the 1930s in terms of the sort of uprising or even re rebellion of workers. And so there are all these very impressive strikes uh, across the board. And I mean, the one I focus on probably the most in, in the book is the 1972 Lordstown strike because it's, it was so well known, because it was in the auto industry, and because supposedly the Lordstown factory had been an automated factory. The first industrial robots were brought into the GM assembly, first in Mawa, New Jersey, but then at their assembly plant in Lordstown, Ohio. And when workers began rebelling, what was remarkable about that was that they're saying, like, this is actually not new. You know, we've been we hated this situation since automation was quote unquote first brought into the plant, and all this meant that we were working very hard. And both management and workers were saying that the line at GM was the fastest line in the world. And okay, there were some machines doing some things, but most of the assembly was being done most certainly by human beings. This quote unquote automated plant. And so it's really in the 1970s that you begin that the automation discourse begins to lose the immense power that it had, had throughout most of the post-war period. And then your conclusion, um, where do you see, what do you see as the enduring legacy of the automation discourse? Well, I think there are a few things. I mean, one of which is uh, there are many, I mean, I think anyone who's a, a U.S. labor historian or a historian of the labor movement in the United States, I should say, has to explain what happened to the labor movement, right, uh, after the middle of the 20th century. And there's no one thing that went wrong, obviously, uh, in terms of the decreasing worker power in the United States. But I would say one of the enduring legacies of the automation discourse was that it, at a very pivotal time, it actually helped to management to disempower workers on the shop floor, not only, uh, you know, literally, physically, but also intellectually and rhetorically, right? The labor movement was constantly reacting to the automation discourse rather than either call, having the ability or the power to call it out and to try to actually say that the shop floor itself should be a place of democracy, really, I mean, immediate democracy. The labor movement never quite got that back from the 1930s. And so that, that I mean, that's one sort of like uh, one thing about the automation discourse that's useful to know. I think beyond that, what I find remarkable is the way that the automation discourse kind of keeps returning in new guises. It hasn't been, even now, in, I said it, I started writing this book in the 20 teens because automation seemed to be coming back as a discursive phenomenon. Even now, it hasn't been as powerful as it was in the 1950s and 1960s. But you do see it working in sort of a similar fashion, in particular when people talk about things like AI. You see the same kind of vagueness and the same sense of defeatism and powerlessness. And what the, I think the final legacy of the automation discourse has been is that it's created the sense that our built world is not a political 
phenomenon that just happens to us and that therefore we wouldn't bring in democracy or even what democratic institutions still remain to us to try to direct it so that, you know, that we can make choices about how it would develop. I would say that's probably been its most sort of uh, devastating consequence. Yeah. So, and, and this, this obviously goes beyond, beyond the scope of the book, but I think it's probably worth having the discussion any, anyway. Um, you know, as you said, the AI sort of morphs some of the previous discourses around automation, and it does have this, you know, um, tinge of inevitability, right? That, that all of these things, you know, we're, we're all, you know, we're all going to be driving, we're all going to be driven around in our self-driving cars, I suppose, or, you know, the, our packages are going to be delivered without the intervention of human hands, et cetera. So what, and again, this is, you know, this is a hard question, but like, what's the answer to that? What, what, how do we essentially repoliticize some of those decisions so that um, it it's not simply a matter of people thinking uh, this is the inevitable consequence of um, computer chips doing things, but instead these are decisions that human beings are making about how to deploy certain technologies in certain ways, and that most of the time they're doing it in a way that doesn't benefit um, certainly the people who who work for them, um, and then more broadly, uh, the rest of us. Yeah, for sure. I mean, to answer, I would say like, and not to just like compound this problem that you're raising, but an even bigger problem, which is like, what about climate change? But really, actually, they are the same yes. question, which is like, this: the country needs an industrial policy. And I mean, one of the recent Supreme Court decisions was that, you know, the federal government has even less power to say, you know, how we're going to regulate a, a power plant than, than they had before, which is the opposite of what I would say one needs to do to answer an emergency, right? And so I think the answer is like, I, I can speak in specific ways that I think would make sense and in larger ways. But the big phenomenon is that it would be great if the nation understood its economy as something it could regulate um, and that it could make, it could regulate it in numerous ways. The other ways, like the immediate protections, at least for like people who have to work for a living, would be two, and they've been floated for a long time actually, which is that a job guarantee, uh, and a part of the job guarantee from the country, from the nation state itself, would include a guarantee to a unionized job, and then also an income guarantee at the same time. Like you could have, you should have both, uh, and that would be a way of actually basically redistributing wealth, and you know. And power to workers, they actually had some say over what was going on. And then, you know, that, that's at the immediate level, I mean, to get rid of like the individual precarity. So then these decisions about changes to the means of production become way less, you know, life-threatening, basically. But then at a much higher level, or part of these immediate uh, suggestions or policies, policies uh, suggestions, would be that you actually need to direct the development of an industrial society. You, you have to, everything is connected in this machine. And it is, it's like a giant apparatus. And the idea that you wouldn't regulate it, and it actually regulate it quite closely is insane. The insanity being it's literally going to melt the world. So maybe you want to make some you know, deliberate decisions about how you're going to run it. But along the same lines, you have to, you know, these technical decisions are in fact political, right? Who will they benefit? And so you're going to say like, we're going to bring in AI. It's like, okay, bring it, bring it in to do what? And do it how? And for whom? That is absolutely something that should be discussed, you know, in a, in a democratic fashion. And those democratic organs that still exist in the US, like its representative bodies, should have some say over it. And so I think, you know, that's why I would link, you know, the individual well-being to the well-being of the entire planet. And in fact, the United States has never really had much of an industrial policy 
not really, even at the highest, that high watermark of like New Deal legislation, you know, even under like Kennedy and LBJ, they were remarkable for the way that they actually did not regulate industry. Uh, in even they were supposedly Keynesians, but they weren't actually very good Keynesians, in my opinion. So, uh, <laughs> so I mean, that that's my answer. To, you know, that, that's how I would answer this. <laughs> okay, uh, so. Jason, uh, what's next? As you, you, I know you're headed off to the Netherlands. Uh, so, what, uh, what can we expect from you going forward? Well, actually, uh, my I should be coming out this fall. I got an article, and it's going to be my next book project. It's called. It's based on. I mean, the article is called "The Myth of Black Obsolescence." But the thing I've been looking at is the connection between uh, the industrial meaning of work and basically and uh, the legacies of both slavery and uh, and racial capitalism and racism and I actually think these are much more tightly linked than have been invested than, than have been shown at least demonstrated up till now and something that the book touches on but as I went back and I was looking at it I said I think you know uh, racism is way more central to the story of automation than I myself realized when I was first doing this project so that's that's the next thing for me that sounds exciting. Hopefully, we'll uh, have a chance to talk again when it comes out. Uh, once again, Jason, once again, my guest today has been Jason Reznikoff. Thank you for your time. And thank you for having me. It was really such a pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he is the author of Labor's End, How the Promise of Automation Degraded Work, New Out from the University of Illinois Press. My name is Tom DeSena, and you are listening to the New Books Network.